0: Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of animal cruelty, murder, suicide, sexual assault and medical malpractice that may be unsettling. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Control is a power we all aspire to have. It's the tool we use to pursue our destinies and build the lives we want. The knowledge, our choices can create meaningful change. But sometimes, in an attempt to gain a greater sense of agency, people deny others a right to make their own decisions. They take extreme measures to assert their authority over the weak. In order to gain control, these people feel they must steal it from someone else. Such was the case of medical killer Donald Harvey. But for Harvey, the ultimate way to control others was to murder them. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath it boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on medical murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients. within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alistair Murdon, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm looking forward to assisting Alistair with some medical insight into our first installment of the case of Donald Harvey, a hospital orderly who himself was way out of order.
0: You can find episodes of medical murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify to stream medical murders for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type medical murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on Donald Harvey, a hospital orderly whose quest for control claimed the lives of at least 37 patients in Ohio and Kentucky today we'll discuss how Donald's childhood influenced his violent proclivities, which took form as he settled into a role assisting nurses. Next time, we'll uncover how Donald managed to target a third hospital before he was finally stopped by authorities. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This
1: episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness
2: But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.
0: Growing up in Boonville, Kentucky, Donald Harvey felt powerless from the start. Much like other families in the Appalachian region during the 1950s, the Harveys struggled financially. They had no running water or heat in their home, which brought regular challenges to Donald's daily life. But his early childhood was wrought with bigger complications. In 1952, when Donald was just six months old, his father fell asleep with baby Donald in his arms. Donald fell to the floor, hitting his head. Just five years later, Donald fell off of a truck and sustained
1: another head wound. Repeated head injury is no small concern, and this is especially true when it comes to children whose brains are still developing. Aside from the potentially dangerous swelling and bleeding in and around the brain, Early life head trauma can result in lasting cognitive deficits, difficulty with emotional regulation, and stunted behavioral maturation. The extent and specifics of this neurological damage depend on the frequency and severity of the trauma, as well as what part of the brain is affected. For example, frontal lobe damage during childhood can hinder someone's future executive functioning or the set of mental processes that allows us to solve problems, set goals, regulate emotions, and manage many other aspects of daily living. Although most children recover fully from head trauma when the blows are mild and infrequent enough, the potential for emerging issues is always there. Unfortunately, the severity of the trauma may not be fully understood until the child matures. Beyond the head
0: injuries, Donald faced his fair share of domestic conflicts. His parents frequently had vicious brawls. And though Donald seemed to manage decent relationships with his mom and dad, he wasn't safe. From around age four, Donald reportedly endured sexual abuse from a relative and a neighbor. The abuse apparently went on for over a decade. It likely instilled a lack of bodily autonomy that may have shaped Donald's relationship to control. One of the first ways this manifested was in his social relationships. Possibly because he was afraid to let anyone see his vulnerability for fear of being exploited, Donald was said to be unfriendly to his fellow classmates at school. His peers found him extremely off-putting. He never joined any extracurricular activities and always seemed to alienate himself from the rest of the student body. Oddly, though, his principal at Sturgeon Elementary School claimed that Donald was an ideal pupil. With adults and authority figures, Donald seemingly put on a mask of charisma, which helped him pursue his sadistic desires behind closed doors. His sinister ways were evident when he was just nine years old. In 1961, Donald accepted a pet chick from a neighbor. Donald's mother objected. She didn't think he was ready for such a fragile pet. Determined to raise it in secret, Donald hid the animal in the family barn. When his mom eventually discovered the chick... She demanded Donald return the chick to their neighbor. Rather than relinquish his pet, nine-year-old Donald waited until he was alone and grabbed a gardening tool. Then, according to the story, Donald beat the chick to death. Perhaps Donald figured if he couldn't have the animal, no one else could. Or maybe he felt the chick would be better off dead than without him as its owner. Whatever the case, killing the chick likely gave Donald a sense of agency, a feeling foreign to him throughout childhood. He was so often at the mercy of his parents' anger, their financial woes, and the sexual violence enacted by adults around him. And Donald's lack of agency only spiraled as he grew older. In 1968, 16-year-old Donald matriculated into high school, but his ninth grade experience lasted just a few months. In woodshop class, he cut a piece of wood too short. To reimburse the school and remain enrolled, Donald would have to pay $3.20, a little over $25 today, or stay after school and work for the funds. His family didn't have money to spare and Donald couldn't stay late because he'd missed the bus. Without options, Donald dropped out and moved to Cincinnati, Ohio to take on a factory position at a mechanical finishing company. Donald's early foray in the working world was abruptly halted just two years later. In 1970, Donald fell off a platform and tore a ligament. Unable to work while injured, Donald was laid off. Circumstances were once again against him, and at just 18, he had to rethink how he was going to make a living. Just a few days later, an unexpected call changed his life forever. It was his mother with unfortunate news. An elderly relative of Donald's was in the hospital, and the prognosis wasn't good. She wanted Donald to return home as soon as possible. Donald obliged, arriving at what was then called Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky, in early 1970. From there, Donald spent every day at the medical center. As a result, he built a close relationship with the staff. The nurses learned that Donald had recently lost his job, and one of the employees suggested Donald apply to be an orderly.
1: Orderlies mostly help nurses and nurses' aides with varied hospital responsibilities and many basic aspects of patient care. They generally have jobs like restocking supplies, cleaning and transporting medical equipment, and even doing laundry. They also help with transporting and moving patients around the hospital, delivering specimens and documents, and taking the dead to the morgue. CNAs, on the other hand, or Certified Nurses' Assistants, are tasked with more hands-on work, like measuring vital signs and documenting patient nutrition. They also help patients with everyday activities like eating, bathing, grooming, and using the bathroom. While CNAs receive training from nursing assistant programs and are licensed by the state, orderly work doesn't require formal qualifications beyond a high school diploma. Orderlies are primarily trained on the job by a facility staff, and they're largely hired based on personality and their projected professionalism. They're a crucial component in terms of keeping hospitals running efficiently.
0: Though he'd never worked as an orderly in the professional sense, 18-year-old Donald had prior experience caring for ill family members and neighbors. Cleaning bedpans and keeping track of medications wasn't new to him. Just like his elementary school principal, the Marymount interviewers were likely mesmerized by Donald's superficial front. He was charming, empathetic, and seemed perfectly suited for the caregiving role. He was hired immediately and began work on May 11, 1970. In Donald's first few days, he worked closely with another orderly to learn more delicate tasks, like removing and inserting catheters. But soon, Donald was entrusted to carry out all duties on his own. A few weeks after starting his job, 18-year-old Donald was assigned the evening shift On his rounds, he entered the room of 88-year-old Logan Evan, a stroke victim. Logan had recently had an accident in his bed and needed his catheter replaced. It was Donald's responsibility to clean him up. According to Donald, when he approached Logan's bedside, the elderly man reached out with a hand covered in excrement and grabbed Donald's shirt. It's unclear whether Logan was intentionally trying to soil Donald or if he was just trying to get his attention. Either way, Donald was livid. He grabbed the pillow from behind Logan's head and pressed firmly on his face. As Logan squirmed, desperate for air, Donald grabbed his stethoscope and pressed it to the older man's chest. Donald's instantaneous rage soon turned to pleasure as he heard Logan's frantic heartbeat fade to stillness. After killing Logan, Donald proceeded to clean him, then alerted nurses to the death nonchalantly as ever. It's unclear what explanation Donald gave to hospital staff. It's likely he said he assumed Logan was asleep while he cleaned him until he checked his pulse. Donald guessed that as a stroke victim, Logan's death was imminent. Therefore, there wouldn't be a detailed autopsy. Sadly, he was right. Coming up, Donald experiments with crueler ways to kill.
2: Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem? He was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, coworkers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season two of Imposters the Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere, at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
0: Now, back to the story. In 1970... Hospital orderly Donald Harvey committed his first homicide by suffocating a stroke victim at Marymount Hospital in Kentucky. When his deed went unnoticed and unpunished by hospital staff, 18-year-old Donald basked in a sense of invincibility. The rush of his first murder opened Donald's mind. As he paraded through the hospital unpunished, it struck him that he could do his worst on any patient without question. Simply pacing from room to room offered him the feeling that the entire world was at his will, something his childhood never allowed him to experience. Now, he waited for his next opportunity to strike. One month after his first murder, Donald entered the room of 42-year-old patient Elizabeth Wyatt. Fighting through a late-stage cancer, Elizabeth was confined to her bed. Donald approached Elizabeth's bed to perform his routine duties, clean her, provide medication and check her oxygen levels. As Donald would later recall, while he performed his duties, Elizabeth expressed her despair. Each time her family visited, she appeared weaker. With cancer ravaging her body, it's likely Elizabeth needed a listening ear or encouraging words. But Donald Harvey wasn't one for encouragement. Instead, he chose to interpret Elizabeth's physical deterioration as a request for medical intervention. He reached over to Elizabeth's oxygen tank and reduced her oxygen levels. The minimal air supply was only enough to keep her alive for a short period. Within four hours, Elizabeth was dead. Though this was at least the second time Donald was present around a patient's death, nurses didn't suspect his involvement. He was still perceived as the kind hearted man who arrived at Marymount to care for his own family member earlier that year, and after his loss, Everyone on staff wanted to see Donald succeed. That reputation allowed him to coast toward his third victim unnoticed. On July 10, 1970, Donald turned his attention to 43-year-old Eugene McQueen, who was diagnosed with lung congestion and cerebral palsy. As a result, it was important that all medical professionals who tended to Eugene always kept him
1: on his back. In combination, cerebral palsy and lung congestion can create potential hazards for a patient. Cerebral palsy is a condition that affects muscle coordination and it's caused by abnormal brain development or physical damage sustained by the brain during its formation. It manifests as floppy or rigid limbs, difficulty with movement and fine motor problems like buttoning a shirt. As such, hospitalized patients with cerebral palsy often need movement and positional assistance and might be physically unable to adjust themselves. These care issues are particularly important for CP patients with breathing problems like Eugene. If these patients are turned or positioned in a way that obstructs their oxygen intake, like being face down on a pillow or mattress, their inability to move could have lethal consequences. This is why body positioning with certain health issues can be life-saving.
0: While Donald was advised of this, perhaps he felt he'd be doing Eugene a favor by ending his chronic pain. He turned Eugene face down in his pillow, leaving him to drown in the accumulation of fluid from his lungs. When his nurses discovered Eugene's death, it was obvious he'd been moved. However, Donald owned up and claimed it was a mistake. Sadly, the nurses believed Donald's lie and it appears that they didn't write him up. The facility was understaffed as it was. This lack of oversight at Marymount Hospital and the unearned assumption of innocence served as tactical advantages for Donald Harvey. Soon, Donald grew bolder and more frequent with his attacks. Especially once he discovered a more secretive and more sinister murder method. Later, in 1970, Donald was tasked with caring for an elderly man whose last name was Williams. The patient was displaying symptoms that may have indicated early signs of a heart attack, Like Elizabeth Wyatt, Williams was on supplemental oxygen. But instead of altering Williams' working oxygen tank like he had Elizabeth's, Donald replaced it with a broken one. He planned to blame this next murder on another
1: mistake. Asphyxiation by means of a malfunctioning oxygen tank is really cruel, Alistair, and can be a horribly agonizing way to go. Oxygen tanks are highly pressurized steel or aluminum cylinders filled with liquid or compressed oxygen and releasing their pressure creates the oxygen flow that's so often needed to keep patients alive. A malfunctioning tank has the potential to kill a patient over the course of hours, minutes, or seconds, depending on the person's condition and the specific problem with the tank. While a reduced oxygen flow can lethally asphyxiate someone over time, a broken or non-flowing tank can kill very quickly. There's also the dangerous possibility that a patient could receive too much oxygen if a tank's on the fritz, and this can lead to oxygen toxicity. If oxygen levels in the body get too high, blood oxygenation becomes compromised, lung tissue gets damaged, and the tiny air sacs within the lungs fill with fluid. This can lead to violent coughing, severe breathing difficulties, a collapsed lung, and even death.
0: For Williams and victims like him, there was no justifying their deaths through mercy. These were torturous, evil murders. And Donald Harvey's cruelty was just beginning. That same year, 1970, Donald had a run-in with an 81-year-old patient, Ben H. Gilbert. Allegedly, as Donald walked by Ben's gurney one day, he accidentally tripped over his drainage tube, painfully disrupting Ben's catheter. From then on, Donald said Ben was aggressive toward him. The turmoil came to a head when Donald entered Ben's room in July 1970. According to Donald, as soon as he walked in, Ben grabbed a pail and bludgeoned him in the head. Donald fell to the floor, unconscious. But journalist David Law has another version of the story. Ben didn't attack Donald simply out of dislike. An argument precipitated it. Ben may have even caught Donald trying to kill him spotting Donald disconnecting critical cords or preparing to dose patient medicine he didn't need. If so, Ben acted to save his own life. But once Donald regained consciousness, he was determined to get revenge. Donald waited until the dark hours of the night to return to Ben's room. While Ben slept... Donald replaced the old man's catheter with an oversized one, then inserted a coat hanger to puncture Ben's bladder. He then removed the oversized catheter and reinserted the original to cover his tracks. The effect was almost instantaneous. Ben fell into a coma
1: and developed peritonitis. A puncture to the bladder and or the bowel can be fatal without medical intervention. Peritonitis is an inflammation of the peritoneum, or the abdominal membrane, that covers and protects your inner organs like the bladder, intestines, spleen, and liver. It's usually caused by a bacterial or fungal infection, and in the case here, Alistair, Ben developed peritonitis from the gram-negative bacteria that seeped out of the hole in his bladder. Symptoms can include things like nausea, vomiting, extreme abdominal pain, confusion, and diarrhea. If left untreated, the resulting infection could spread throughout the body, leading to death. This is why patients have to be treated immediately when they develop any symptoms suggesting peritonitis. Sadly, the nurses at Marymount
0: failed to diagnose Ben in time. The infection killed him within days, and Donald was not implicated. Had Ben's body been closely examined, the puncture wounds may have given Donald away. Donald must have been aware that his rash attack led to a close call, because not long after he murdered Ben Gilbert, Donald struck up a friendship with a mortician named Vernon Midden. The two met when Vernon arrived at Marymount to retrieve a patient's amputated leg for embalming. Likely realizing that Vernon would know how to spot different causes of death, Donald decided
1: to pick Vernon's brain. While doctors and morticians aren't exactly colleagues, their work does in fact intersect. There aren't any specific rules prohibiting doctors from befriending medical examiners, even if they're connected to the same deceased patient. It's common for people working within the medical field to interact and become friendly, and there's no harm in it if doctors respect their commitments to patients' confidentiality. I suppose under the right circumstances, establishing friendships with other practitioners could be useful for a doctor's ability to get away with malpractice. A close relationship with another care provider could potentially help a depraved doctor gain access to certain medications, equipment, or patient information. All of this would, of course, be incredibly unethical.
0: But Donald Harvey had no sense of ethics. By the end of 1970, his first year at Marymount, he'd killed at least 10 patients. Going into 1971, He wanted to learn more about the physical signs related to certain kinds of deaths so he could continue getting away with his crimes. But Donald's motives for visiting Vernon at the funeral home weren't purely devious. As he spent more time around Vernon, he developed romantic feelings. Vernon's grim career and fascination with the occult appealed to Donald in a way no one else yet had. Though Vernon reportedly had a wife and children, Donald flirted his way into Vernon's heart. They began a clandestine affair, not uncommon for gay men at the time. What was uncommon was how they spent their time outside the bedroom. Donald often accompanied Vernon to his shifts at the funeral home. There, Vernon showed off his embalming process and taught Donald how to identify specific signs on a body that could help a medical examiner determine a cause of death. Notably, Vernon showed Donald how fibers were collected from a smothering victim's respiratory system. When smothered with a pillow or other fabric, the choking victim inhales tiny fibers of cloth, If there's ever suspicion of foul play, an autopsy tech checks the deceased's airways for these nearly invisible cloth fibres. With new insight, Donald continued to asphyxiate patients with a renewed confidence. On January 15th, 1971, he decided to test out his modus operandi on another patient, Maggie Rawlins. She'd been admitted to Marymount after enduring excruciating pain from a burn. Alone in the room, Donald placed a plastic bag over Maggie's head before smothering her with a pillow. The plastic prevented Maggie from inhaling any fabric fibers, so if an autopsy were ever performed, it would be much harder to prove foul play. Unbeknownst to Vernon, the information he'd imparted had made Donald Harvey a more elusive killer. Donald continued to use this method on several victims. Not long after Maggie, he attacked Silas Butner, a 62-year-old who was admitted with kidney complications. Donald felt the nurses neglected Silas because he was black but rather than being extra caring to make up for the mistreatment or reporting the discriminatory nurses, Donald decided Silas could only be at peace in death. Donald implemented his new suffocation routine, placing a plastic bag over Silas's head before covering him with a pillow. But after several attempts, he was unable to kill Silas. So he resorted to an old technique, retrieving a broken oxygen tank from storage and using it to replace the functioning tank in Silas' room. Within a few hours, Silas had passed away, suffocating as hospital staff were unaware of his situation. Though Silas's body underwent an autopsy, homicide was not determined as the cause of death. Patients like Maggie Rawlins and Silas Butner were not terminally ill and very well could have made full recoveries if Donald hadn't intervened. But Donald convinced himself he'd saved these people from suffering. He preferred to see himself as a hero rather than admit to the sense of power and accomplishment he personally derived from killing. He'd never felt better. Until early 1971, when his romance with Vernon ended. It never would have worked between them in the long term, since Vernon had a family and Donald hadn't fully embraced his sexuality. Still, Donald was heartbroken. That winter, he turned to alcohol and then resentment. Home alone, Donald indulged dark fantasies of embalming Vernon alive. Not long after, he attempted to burn down a bathroom in his apartment complex. Caught, he was charged with arson and paid a $50 fine. But Donald couldn't clean up his act for the life of him. On March 31, 1971, Donald's grief reached its height when he was accused of burglary after being spotted wearing his neighbor's clothes. Intoxicated and disoriented, Donald was taken into custody. When questioned by police, he suddenly confessed to killing patients at Marymount Hospital. He slurred his words as he spouted details of each violent attack, and his statements were haphazard and disjointed. After briefly considering his claims, the police dismissed Donald as a delusional alcoholic and proceeded with the burglary charges. According to journalist David Law, Donald's charges were reduced to petty theft after he took a plea deal. It resulted in a small fine, but no jail time. Though his confessions were ignored, it wasn't lost on Donald that loose lips could lead to trouble. He had let his sadness and drinking habits get the best of him. Now, the authorities had reason to keep an eye on him. Perhaps fearing further scrutiny, Donald resigned from his role at Marymount Hospital and enlisted in the US Air Force. Knowing his arrest record might make his entry more difficult, he concealed certain details about his past. The lies worked. Donald was promptly accepted into the ranks and in 1971, he packed his bags for California. He hoped that military life would present ample distractions from his heartbreak and alcoholism. However, his military enlistment was not as thrilling as one would expect. Instead of being sent overseas to fight in the Vietnam War, Donald worked as an administrative clerk stationed in San Francisco. His job involved sorting and processing mail. Within a few months, Donald was reportedly using drugs again, this time overdosing on NyQuil. According to this version of events, when he recovered and his Air Force superiors questioned him about the incident, Donald admitted his prior arrest for burglary. If the story is true, it's unclear what caused Donald to confess to something he tried so hard to conceal. Though the most reasonable explanation is he was exhausted by the effort it took to maintain the lie. Consequences were swift. Donald was ousted from the Air Force in March 1972. Though his dismissal was officially listed as an honorable medical discharge, it's likely his criminal past was the true determining factor. With his truth exposed, 19-year-old Donald periodically landed at his parents' home. The move seemingly exacerbated Donald's feelings of inadequacy. He once again started misusing medications, but this time he was caught by his parents. In July, Donald was admitted for three months of psychiatric treatment at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Over the next two years, Donald took a series of odd jobs, at one point living at a YMCA after his parents kicked him out. For Donald, the time was lackluster. He craved the power he'd found in a hospital setting, but worried about applying to positions that allowed him close proximity to patients. For those applications, Donald would have known that he'd have to list his prior work experience. And though Marymount had dismissed the numerous deaths that happened on his watch, there was always the possibility that since his departure, they'd investigated. Still, by September 1975, 23-year-old Donald felt the risk of requiring Marymount's referral was worth taking. He applied to a position as a nursing assistant at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio, a role that required direct contact with patients. To his delight, Donald was hired. His tasks included housekeeping, aiding examiners during autopsies, and working as a catheterization technician the majority of Donald's patients resided in a ward at the VA hospital infamously known as Death Alley. In that section of the hospital, it wasn't a matter of if a patient would die, but when. Coming up, Donald terrorizes a new hospital before turning on those closest to him.
2: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten.
0: Back to the story. In 1975, 23 year old Donald Harvey started a new job at Cincinnati's VA hospital. It wasn't long before Donald found himself alone with a male patient in his 40s. The patient was suffering from cirrhosis of the liver and was on oxygen. Donald found it all too easy to manipulate the man's oxygen tank, killing him. Gratified, Donald continued in an extended killing spree, reportedly attacking patients at will over the next year. Meanwhile, beyond the doors of the hospital, he now had the confidence to pursue local occultist groups and eccentric communities. Most notably, around 1976, he became a neo-Nazi. Within the organization, Donald took on a German alias, distributed propaganda, and vandalized buildings with racial and ethnic slurs. While Donald claimed he chose his victims based on their illness alone, His affiliation with Nazism may reveal racism and prejudice in his victim selection. But Donald wasn't just a Nazi. In June 1977, he completed a course in witchcraft to be initiated into a coven. The ceremony took place at the home of one of the coven members in New Bern, North Carolina. After a nice dinner, The hopeful initiates gathered in the living room and stood before an altar where the ritual was conducted. Donald claims that during this initiation ritual he interacted with a spirit named Duncan, a doctor who was killed during World War II. The experience was so significant for Donald he decided to consult Duncan every time he was considering killing. Starting in 1977 Donald conducted regular ceremonies in his home to summon Duncan. When the spirit appeared, he'd ask which of his patients he should kill. At the hospital, Donald obeyed Duncan's choices without questions. Donald also began saving mementos from his victims, usually a bodily fluid. At his next ceremony, he'd present these trophies to Duncan as an offering. Donald's obsession with carrying out a spirit's will may have distracted him from the turmoil of his inner demons. Though he clearly needed psychiatric help, it seems he survived the later 1970s without further drug overdoses. And somehow, amid spreading hate, summoning spirits and murdering his patients, Donald Harvey found time for love. In August 1980, 28-year-old Donald moved in with a man named Carl Howeller. Carl was unaware of Donald's dark secrets, but, ironically, his own skeletons were the first to fall out of the closet. When Carl was reportedly picked up by police for indecent public exposure, Donald discovered that Carl spent every Monday having sex with other men in a nearby park. To end the infidelity, Donald devised a plot. While working in the VA hospital's lab, he'd learned about arsenic. Intrigued, he acquired a bottle and began experimenting on himself, trying to find a dosage that was potent enough to make someone ill, but weak enough to keep them alive.
1: Despite arsenic's deadly reputation, it takes a relatively large amount of this chemical to kill someone. Having worked in a lab, Donald was probably aware of this. Poisons are often tested on rats, mice, and human tissue samples. Known thresholds from post-mortem documentation help scientists establish the substance's lethal dose as well. There's no safe or healthy way to test poison on yourself, and Donald must have been getting some psychological fulfillment out of this self-destructive behavior. It was a really masochistic practice. He also would have been experiencing a lot of abdominal pain, vomiting, fatigue, and diarrhea during this experimentation, as these are all common symptoms of arsenic poisoning.
0: However, for Donald Harvey... The benefit of learning how to use the poison outweighed the risk of illness or death. Once he determined the perfect dosage, Donald began dosing Carl's food on Sundays. The arsenic made Carl too sick to leave the house on Mondays and therefore unable to seduce men in the park. Thanks to the poison, Donald had Carl Howeller right where he wanted him. And Carl was none the wiser. Unfortunately, poisoning his boyfriend had awakened a new intrigue for Donald. He soon targeted a close friend of Carl's, who is often referred to by the name Diane. Donald felt that Diane was jealous of his relationship with Carl. So during one of his shifts at the hospital, Donald snuck into the morgue. There, he sifted through biohazardous waste until he found a new source of poison a sample of hepatitis B. Soon after, he invited Diane to have dinner and mixed the hepatitis B serum into her salad dressing.
1: Hepatitis B is a liver infection most commonly spread by infected bodily fluids, and it can be deadly without proper antiviral medications. When someone's first infected with hepatitis B, they get what's called an acute infection, which becomes classified as chronic if it doesn't clear after six months. Most adults with acute hepatitis B infections only express mild symptoms, which tend to show up at around the three-month mark after exposure. However, symptoms have developed in some cases in as little as two weeks. Some of these include loss of appetite, muscle aching, joint discomfort, fever, and stomach pain. More severe manifestations include nausea, vomiting, bloating, and jaundice. If these symptoms become overwhelming, they could require hospitalization and fluid administration. In extremely rare cases, an acute hepatitis B infection could lead to something called fulminate hepatitis, which can result in sudden liver failure and death. Hepatitis B is definitely something that has the potential to wreak havoc, and we're lucky they developed a vaccine for it in the late 1980s. Unfortunately, it wasn't soon enough for Diane.
0: Though Diane sought treatment and survived, no one connected her strange, sudden illness with Donald Harvey. Donald had once again gotten away with revenge poisoning, and now that he'd practiced on his boyfriend and friend, Donald was ready to expand his evil experiments. Donald threw a dinner party where he served arsenic-laced beef stroganoff. Later that year, he gave a neighbor an arsenic poisoned pie and jar of mayonnaise. After that neighbor died, he repeated the crime, gifting another neighbor an arsenic pie. It swiftly became apparent that the reason Donald Harvey had murdered so many patients wasn't because of the hospital setting, but because he had access to them. But now, he felt he could get away with murdering anyone. Especially those he saw as a threat. According to journalist David Law, around 1983, Donald targeted his boyfriend Carl's parents. Maybe he was jealous of their relationship with Carl, or maybe he just didn't like them. Either way, Donald served the Howellers arsenic at family dinners. On May 1st, 1983, Carl's father suffered a stroke and was taken to Providence Hospital in Cincinnati. Donald visited him there, feigning care and concern. But the true intent of his visit was to slip arsenic in his food once again. Carl's father died the same day. Though Carl was unaware of Donald's attacks on him, his family, and his friends, the jealousy Donald displayed elsewhere was enough to put a strain on their relationship. As his personal life spiraled, Donald's murders at the VA hospital continued. By 1985, Over a 10-year span of employment, 33-year-old Donald had killed at least 15 patients. The details of these killings are unknown, mostly because Donald allegedly didn't remember many of them. Apparently, his worsening relationship with Carl and his bouts of depression took precedence in his mind, so much so that he forgot many of his victims' names. Tragically, Donald went unnoticed for years. Until July 18, 1985. Leaving the hospital after his shift, Donald was stopped by security guards. They said he was acting suspiciously. Donald didn't buy their explanation. He believed they'd received an anonymous tip from Carl to look into him. In Donald's mind, Carl was resentful for the turmoil in their relationship and would do anything to destroy Donald's success, even turn him in. There's no indication Carl ever did anything of the sort or even that he was aware of Donald's crimes, but it didn't stop Donald from going off on the security guards, which only raised their suspicions. They searched Donald's locker where they found stolen microscope slides. Among the samples was a cross-section of human liver, the same organ impacted by hepatitis B. Additionally, the officers confiscated the bag Donald had been carrying. Inside, they found scissors, gloves, needles, medical books, literature on the occult and a pistol. Donald claimed he never brought his firearm to work and the weapon was planted by Carl as an act of revenge. Regardless, carrying a weapon in a federal building constituted a fine of $50 and was grounds for termination. Donald's saving grace was the fact that the search of his bag was technically inadmissible as necessary procedures weren't followed. So, while hospital administrators were alarmed by the findings, The gun possession was not reflected on Donald's employment history when he was fired. He was able to move on without a record of the incident. And before long, Donald Harvey found an opportunity to take more victims than ever before. Next week, Donald starts a new orderly job at Daniel Drake Memorial Hospital and begins the crime spree that finally sparks attention from authorities. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair, very much for having me. For more information on Donald Harvey, among the many sources we used, we found Defending Donald Harvey by William Whalen and Bruce Martin extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Courtney Taylor, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille and Maggie Admire, fact checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.